Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where two people who are us read things. She's a librarian and also my mom. I'm a writer and also myself. And we read uh, Sandman. Volume Volume 8. What? Volume 8. Volume 8. World's End. Written by Neil Gaiman. Drawn by a bunch of people. This is... uh, this is essentially an expanded version of one of the stories from Fables and Reflections, one of the ones about people meeting and telling stories together. And so it's that spread all across five issues, I believe. Yeah. And all of the framing device stories are drawn by Brian Talbot. And the rest are drawn by various other artists. So this is volume eight of the Sandman series, but it's issues 51 to 56, published in 1993 to 1994. Yeah. And technically it's a standalone, but it's interconnected into the main story arch, which you find out at the end. It's yeah. The, the, what you realize after you've read all of Sandman is this actually takes place concurrently with volume 10. Right. So, It's, But it also takes place at a bunch of different times all at once because it's weird. So fundamentally, it's a frame narrative. That's the literary term that it uses, what this is. And then do you want to talk a little bit about what a frame narrative or a frame-up is? Sure. I think probably the most famous, possibly the first example of this is the Canterbury Tales. And I mean, is it is a essentially a collection of short stories that have a narrative that weaves between them that provides context for the stories and ties them together. In this case, it's a bunch of people at an inn, literally just telling stories as they drink and try to pass uh, time while they wait for a storm to blow over. So the frame is the overarching story. Of a bunch of travelers from different dimensions and times and realities that meet at a tavern, which is called the World's End, which is a free house. And then it turns out that you learn that there's actually four taverns at the end of the world. And what is happening is something that Neil Gaiman calls a reality storm, which one of the characters explains is a really severe storm that happens throughout time mm-hmm. when there's a monumental event that occurs. Yes. So something has happened, which you'll learn about later on at the very end of the story, which has caused almost like a time riff, which causes all of these people from different times and different realities to meet at this tavern. And they, and they can't leave the tavern until the event is over. So none of them know what the event is, so they decide to spend their time telling each other stories. And it's That's kind the of, rule of the inn. You have to tell stories. Yeah. That's how it works. So it's kind of like you said, it's like Canterbury Tales or Arabian Nights, mm-hmm. where there's a story within a story, but because it's Neil Gaiman, there's a story within a story within a story. Some of this narratives have three or four interlocking stories going on at the same time. So it's a frame narrative to the next level because Neil Gaiman doesn't do anything half-assed. I think the deepest we go is three. The last story 
has a sequence of people telling stories and then the last story in that sequence involves a person in that story telling a story. So I think we end up going three stories deep at the deepest. Well, I just want to, before we get into the beginning of the framing narrative, the original, the Genesis story that the other ones spin off from, I just wanted to say that as I was reading this, it really put me in mind of Hyperion. Yeah. The Dan Simmons novel, which we had talked about on other podcasts. Yeah, I mean, Hyperion is very much... Space Canterbury Tales. Exactly. And this is drawing on that same tradition that Hyperion is drawing on. Yeah, I could see that. So I'm prefacing that because there's when I'm going through the stories, I'm thinking a lot about Hyperion, and I think it influenced a lot of my interpretation of what I was reading. Sure. So let's start with the first, the opening sequence, the original frame-up. It's the story of two people, Brant Tucker and Charlene Mooney, who are co-workers, who are driving, they're doing a drive share to Chicago. And mm-hmm. it's in the summer, and there's this weird, mysterious snowstorm that happens. And he sees this creature, it looks like a mythological, almost like a Norse-inspired monster, and he crashes his car. He crashes Charlene's his car. car. Yeah, Charlene's car. They're co-workers who don't really like each other. Like, they're not, like, enemies, but they have no... There isn't like a romance happening between them or anything. And they're both trying to go to Chicago. Yeah. And he tries to carry Charlene, who is unconscious, from the car wreck and can't find his way until he is directed to an inn that is only there, if you believe in it, by a hedgehog. Right. Which is sort of important. I think so. And it's sort of the same thing. It's that sort of earth element that leads you to some kind of deeper you know, mythological or mysterious event. Yeah, and this, all of this sequence and all of the other parts of the framing sequence are drawn by Brian Talbot and inked by Mark Buckingham, Dick Giordano, and Steve Lealoa. And no one cares, but you can really tell that some of these sequences are inked by uh, Lealoa. He's probably most famous for working with Larry Hama on the old G.I. Joe comics. I think that... He has a very gritty style. Yeah, and I think that works well because each of the stories has a different artistic style to sort of align with the type of story that they're telling. And I think this sort of old world, really rich, really almost like a woodcut style really offsets the fact that the world's end tavern is sort of timeless. I mean, you have creatures there that you know, could be really old or ancient creatures. You have sort of contemporary looking people who are obviously from our reality. So there's a lot of richness in the color and the tone and the drawing that sort of gives you this impression of almost like, like maybe like a stained glass or maybe almost like an illustration that would be found like in something like the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the faces are highly detailed. The color is very saturated. It's, so it kind of really gives you that, like you're reading an old book, almost, a feel. Sure, sure. So. And we've seen a bunch of Brian Talbot's art before. He's the guy who drew, uh, I believe he drew Orpheus's, the tale of, the song of Orpheus, and he also drew uh, August. And I think that both of those have that sort of 
old timey newspaper feel to them, and mm-hmm. I kind of get that from this. So. He's a guy, one of the dudes who he came up through, uh, not through doing traditional superhero comics, but through British comic magazines and strips. And he he worked in like 2000 AD and heavy metal and those sort of um, you know grittier, less uh, commercial almost. And you can kind of see it in his art. Like, if you're familiar with the kinds of like that sort of art and judge dread and stuff like that, it's it's a similar style. So, like speaking of artistic styles, let's get right into issue fifty one, which is the first story, which is called "A Tale of Two Cities," because this one has this sort of really modern looking art style. Yes, it's, the- it's very horizontal. There's a lot of white space. In fact, it uses white space instead of like traditional black lines that you would see in a, in a traditional comic book. And to me, it almost has like a sort of a very like expressionist style, like almost like a German expressionism yeah. as like a 1930s aesthetic. There's a lot of sort of, um, graphic delineation, you know, for the design of the people and, well, and it's a city. story about cities, and I think there's an attempt to invoke urbanist art in the the artwork of the story. is It's by Alex Stevens, is the artist on this. And it really, it eschews, like, comic storytelling almost entirely. There is some, like you said, there are, the, the gutters are just white space. There is not a black outline. And at parts of the story, that, like, there are things that are ba- uh, functionally traditional comic panels and at some points it just sort of breaks down into images and narration boxes it's almost a illustrated prose story more than it is a comic book there aren't really like word balloons at any point in it no and i think that's it i think it is the most sort of literary looking of the of all the issues in this volume so it's the story of a man who's a businessman i don't think they actually ever name him i thought he had a name oh i guess he doesn't was that robert Maybe it's Robert. Maybe he's just a businessman. Maybe he's a salary man, as Nate likes to talk about salary men all the time. Yeah. I thought they gave him a name. Doesn't really matter. So he lives in this, he's a businessman who lives in the city, and this should be very fun for Nate. He loves the city that he lives in, and he spends his time, his free time, exploring the city and learning about different parts of the city. And then something happens to him. He's running late at work one day. And he misses his train and he runs to catch his train and he thinks he's catching his train, but he's catching a weird sort of time train that takes him. I think it's a dream train because he sees dream on the train. Right. So then. So dream shows up in every one of these stories in some way. He's not the main character of any of them, but he, he, he is present or at the very least, I guess he doesn't really show up in the. No. One of them. Well, let, but yeah. don't spoil it. So he ends up on a dream train, which takes him into the dreams of the city itself. So the story is about a city that is dreaming, and this man is lost in the city's dreams. Yes. And he encounters... Another person who who is lost, who eventually escapes the dream by recognizing and following an alleyway from the, the city he lived in when in the waking world. And then he meets a woman who is beautiful, who he instantly falls in love with. But in that moment, he sees a familiar doorway 
And rather than stay with her and be lost in the dream of the city, possibly forever, he runs to the doorway and walks back out into the waking world. I, when I read this, thought that the woman that he falls in love with is dead. Yeah, I did think that. I thought that too. Well, after reading more about this sort of literary criticism about this issue... It's very clear that the artist was not drawing death. He was drawing another person who had a very similar physical attribute. But it, I can read it as it being death. And then the choice becomes not stay in the dream or escape. It becomes die or live. Embrace death or, and, and, you know, cease to be or return back to the, the harsh reality of the real world and, as we learn, live in fear. Right. So then he ultimately decides to leave and he escapes the dream of the, the city's, city's dream. dream. And then he immediately leaves and goes to a small town because he doesn't want to live in the city anymore because he's afraid of the time. If the dream should awake, if the city should awaken from its dream, what could happen? Yeah. And this is the first thing that we get. That all of these stories are going to be about impending death or doom in some way. This story... It's would, the least connected to the other ones, I think, thematically. I Well, I don't think that. I think there's one that's even less connected, but we'll get to that. I think this one reminded me a lot of an H.P. Lovecraft story. And it's, like, I was thinking a lot, especially of the, like, dream... Well, there's the one, I don't remember the name of it, where the guy literally go. Well, there's the dream cycle. Is that what you're thinking of? Yes. Like the dream quest of Unknown Kadath? Yeah, and that's sort of that whole um, H.P. Lovecraft device where, he's, where a character is wandering alone and terrified in an unknown space, which is often a city of some sort, and that sort of... You're not quite sure what the fear is, but there's that like layer of like psychological tension that's being developed. I feel that like when the businessman is running through the city and he's anxious and he's confused, but he's also upset because he loves the city and it's very familiar to him. So it's disorienting to him. That sort of feels like almost like a Lovecraftian device where the terror, there may be an external terror but it may just be your mind making that terror. You're never quite sure what what he's really actually afraid of. Is he afraid of being lost in the city? Is he afraid of the actual city? Is he afraid of knowing and not knowing at the same time? Is that creating some anxiety for him? So you don't really know why he's afraid of the city. Which I think is kind of really like a Lovecraftian kind of thing to have this fear of this vast thing but also have it like very tiny and like personalized to you yeah it's sort of an interesting melange of influences because you have lovecraft i mean obviously i think specifically the is it the nameless city it's probably a huge influence on that on this which is literally that's the story you were talking about where the guy every night dreams of this alien city and walks around on it also at one point they use the word cyclopean which is you know a pretty dead giveaway that Lovecraft is an influence on a work. If you see that word, I don't think I've ever seen it outside of that context. Uh, but then you also have stuff like Italo Calvino and Invisible Cities and things like the Situationalist mu- Movement and Psychogeography. 
all kind of mixed up into this interesting story. There's also, it's this weird take on Lovecraftian horror where, because the it ends in the way a lot of Lovecraft stories do, where a person is afraid that something vast and alien is going to wake up. But the thing he's afraid of is not an alien. It is the city. It's something that man-made. It's something he used to love and feel connected to and an expert in. And now he understands that it's so much bigger than he is and so much... There's so much he just doesn't know and now he can't help but be terrified of it. Well, I think that's like a classic Lovecraftian trope is that you're afraid of your own life. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of really tough. Like, he does that a lot. Like, you know, I mean, a lot of Lovecraft's work is a manifestation of Lovecraft himself being uncomfortable in his own life and his own society and his own sort of cultural views, which we know tend to be sort super of, racist. Yeah, I was going to say very negative, but super racist also works. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Lovecraft. Like, the thing that he has up on a lot of other. Unfortunate writing from a similar time period or earlier is that he abstracts it. He he takes the way that things make him feel, and at his best, he tells a story that projects that feeling without delving into the gross specifics of what is causing that feeling in him. And when his stories were at their worst, it was when he was just exploring those gross, petty specifics. I'm, I'm thinking of something like the horror or Red Hook. Where rather than abstracting out and exploring the feeling of fear through these like alien monsters, that's literally just a story about how Italians are spooky. Well, I think this sort of the story too reminds me of that sort of person, the suburban person who's afraid of like center city or Mm -hmm. what happens in the city or going to the city at night, which, you know, a person like an urban dweller who is like connected to their city doesn't feel that anxiety about taking the bus at like 1130 at night that someone from the suburbs may feel. Mm-hmm. So, but I feel like when he, when the businessman is out of his routine and he gets on that train, that sort of is what sparks the anxiety for him and his fear of the unknown. Yeah. So, so the next story, number 52 Clorican's tale. Clorican's tale, and Clorican is the fairy brother of Nuala, who lives in Dream's castle. Yeah, she works for Dream now. We first saw both of them, and last saw Clorican in, or the Clorican, and he's in com- uh, season of Mist. He was the one of the envoys along with his sister that was sent to, not to get the key to hell, but to prevent. I forget what, what... Someone else from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was similar and, to what she wants in this. Like, she wanted something, like, abstract that wasn't, like, a concrete goal, because the fairies are supposed to be manipulative. And I think that's, like, the whole theme of the fairies, is they never want anything. They just want to stop something that's happening. Yeah. Because they don't want it to happen. So he's sent as an ambassador to this city, which is, like... Aurelia. Aurelia, which is, I guess... In the fairy world, the stand-in for, like, ancient Rome. I think it doesn't... I don't think it's in the fairy world. I think it's just on another Earth. Right. So, there's a problem with the leader of this city who wants to um, grow his empire. He wants to unite the people of the plains, and for reasons that are never really explained, 
that is apparently bad for the fairies. Yeah, so he's sent there to try to stop this. And then we know from his other, our other encounters with him in the other stories that he's sort of like hedonistic and impulse driven and he can't really concentrate and he kind of goes off on these weird self-created adventures that really have nothing to do with his main mission. So he's kind of like, I guess even for a fairy, he's kind of a flake. Yeah, and we find out that he he's not like a trickster figure, which is important. He's just kind of like, like you said, like impulsive. And we find out that he actually was in Aurelia thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago. And he caused a big problem and was chased out of town. He always is, it's, he sort of reminds me of like a character from The Princess Bride where he's always alluding to these like ad- adventures and misadventures, but he never goes into detail. Like, whoa, I was in that city mm. a thousand years ago and they don't want me back. You know, I did something new, you know, and he pulls on his shirt and he's kind of like, you have to just imagine what kind of like nutty hijinks he got up to. Yeah, this one's story is relative, compared to some of the other stuff that happens in this volume, it's relatively lighthearted. It's kind of like a roguish adventure. But I really, the reason why I thought that the city might be a stand-in for ancient Rome is that the leader of the city that he meets, who refers to himself as the psychopomp and the... Carnifex. The Carnifex. They're kind of, they're like Roman terms. Like a, psych, a psychopomp is the character, I guess in mythology, who would spirit people to the dead mm-hmm. or in religious terms could be used as a person who got who's a spiritual guide so this leader claims to be both the spiritual guide and the actual living emperor of this city yeah and a carnifex is an executioner right which so is he's the executioner and the guide to the afterlife right which is kind of like you know a conflict of interest in my mind so anyway, he's this huge fat guy who loves to eat and he's kind of corrupt and he's con- and it's implied that he had gotten both of these titles by some kind of malfeasance. He was well, I think the idea is that he was appointed Carnifex just because he's from a noble family or appointed Psychopomp because he's from a noble family and then he killed the Carnifex and due to some obscure possibly forged rule, he allowed himself to also be appointed to Carnifex. Because originally these are supposed to be separate offices. One that is the physical ruler of the the land and one who's the spiritual leader. And this is like the first of two examples we see in this collection of like cultures that are oriented around death. Right. Because, like, their whole thing is, like, the psychopomp ensures that people will have, like, a painless afterlife. And he takes, like, tributes for that. And then there's this idea that, like, the ruler, the most powerful person in the land, is the guy who has the power to end lives. He's the the executioner. But he's also depicted as this huge... It's kind of Rodrigo Borgia, like... Yeah, it's this huge, bloated, gross, sweaty Batman who's kind of, like, reminds me of, like... A character from Preacher or something like that. Like this sort of gross, inflated, like, depiction or symbolic, you know, design of some comment about, like, organized religion. Yeah, he's supposed, he's supposed to be, like, this sort of over-the-top, like, selfish, hedonistic figure. 
So, what's his name again? Chloricon? Chloricon starts to figure this out and he gets thrown into the dungeon. Well, he on a, he's, he's at a, at like a dinner mm-hmm. and he just kind of like loses his shit and against his own will and better judgment, like spouts a prophecy where he says that the, basically that the dead will rise and the carnifex will die and he won't be remembered. And I think, I can't tell if it's like, like, oops, I did it again. I'm impulse control problem. I just shouted something off. Or that's part of his, like, calculations. Because I think part of his charm is you never know if he's being a buffoon mm-hmm. or if he's acting a buffoon as, like, a subterfuge to say, to for, like, whatever machinations he's... I'm, that set, whole sentence was incredibly loaded with large words. I get what you're saying. I think he's he's very much... To be even more pretentious, he he is very much like formalistically a Harlequin figure, right? I think that's very like that is the point of his character. So he ends up in the dungeon, and then I guess Nuella intercedes with Morpheus on his behalf. But because of the trouble he caused in the city centuries ago, they know about fairies, and the dungeon is lined with cold iron. And he's put in cold iron manacles, so he can't use any of his fairy magic, right, to escape. And then in a dream. He's visited by Nuella, which is another, like, it's, I, that's where it starts to, that, I think that's where you start, you realize that this is in another world. Because at first I was like, oh, this is the distant past. And then Nuella shows up and she's already working with Dream. And it's like, well, then that means this is taking place in the present day, which means this must be taking place on another world. And that's when you start to understand, like, the full scope of what's going on in the, in at World's End. And I think you also realize that they're not in the dreaming because when Nuella shows up, she's wearing her fairy glamour. And she can't wear her glamour when she's in the dreaming because of the request that Dream made to her where she couldn't use her glamour. Oh, I thought that was supposed to be that Chloricon was, like, seeing his, like, seeing her how he imagined her. It, that's another interpretation. But then Dream shows up and he looks crazy. There's a lot of really, yeah. He has, like... A leather outfit on, but it's only one sleeve, and he has a giant pompadour, and it's kind of like... It is the most, like, lamb rock he's ever looked in this. Again, I think that's supposed to be, like, that is how the Chloricon of the fairies would imagine the Lord of Dreams to look. Yeah. It's like half T-Rex, half, like, samurai. It is a very strange look that they have for him. So... So then he helps him out, you know, he lets him go, and then he goes ahead with his plan, and I don't know how, he, somehow he re, he resurrects, oh, he gets sent to the chamber where all the previous... So he, Dream lets him out of the cell with his magic powers, and then Chloricon puts on his glamours and goes around the city spreading rumors that the Carnifex slash Psychopomp uh, is, like, disrespects the office and mm-hmm. gave, like, holy sacraments while wiping his ass. And oh, yeah, there's... Then his final, like, his big performance is he shows up as the dead Carnifex, or, or the Psychopomp, as the dead Carnifex, and tells everyone that the current Carnifex murdered him. And then, in an attempt to weighed out a riot that's happening in the streets. The current Carnifex locks himself 
in the tomb, because the whole castle is a tomb. Right. And he locks himself in the crypt with the other dead Carnifexes, and his assistant reveals himself to be Chloricon in disguise, and then the dead Carnifex rises from the grave and tackles the current Carnifex through a window to his death. And Chloricon denies raising the skeleton, but it again, it's ambiguous as to whether he just lucked out or this was his plan all along, but it ends up fulfilling his prophecy. I think that the whole sequence where he's going through town and he's telling of all these sort of abominations that the psychopomp has done sort of reminds me of that whole period of history in the Catholic Church where the popes that were elected weren't religious leaders, but they were more like political leaders. And there was a lot of corruption and a lot of um, sort of, you know, there was a, a lot of different Italian houses and families were competing to get this someone appointed to be a pope. And there was a lot of um, intrigue and stuff going around about the different popes and popes were being murdered. Yeah, and, you had your anti-popes hanging around. That sounds like a joke I'm making, but that was a thing. There were anti-popes. Yeah. They didn't have reverse pope powers, which is disappointing. You know, they didn't have, fly around and have like a laser fight with the regular pope. But I think it's kind of like the... Borgia, you know, the family, yeah. that sort of medieval, uh, you know, Italian renaissance. So I think maybe I would change my opinion in that this city is like ancient Rome. I don't think it's like ancient Rome, and I don't think that the Carfax is like a Roman Empire. I think he's like that sort of Renaissance-era corrupted pope. I think you're right in both senses. I think when Chloricon was first there... The city was like ancient Rome. And he talks about it being full of solemnly painted statues and stuff like that. Now he's arrived later and the city has evolved and in some ways degraded. And it is more like Renaissance or late medieval period Italy. And when he first arrives and meets the Carnifex, there is like some reference to him just basically taking bribes to provide or like using the taking bribes to provide people with like religious sacraments or implying that if they didn't do stuff to materially benefit them on this earth, they were going to be fucked in the afterlife. But I like at the very end when the previous Carfax rises up and he's kind of like a ghoul and he attacks the current and he murders him. And then at the point someone says, oh, is this your doing? And the fairy says, nope, this is not one of my things. Yeah. So he kind of like gets his comeuppance and then... You know, Kohler Khan just sort of rides off into the sunset. Yeah, and then he winds up in the reality storm and winds up at World's End. We found out this is specifically the story of how he got here. Also, I wanted to say that the art uh, in this issue is by John Watkiss. And then it's... Uh, other than that, the team's exactly the same. Yeah, and I think it's like... It's the same thing with the theme. Like, this story has a lot of pastels in it. A lot of sort of religious iconography you know there's very there's parts where only some of the um like i'm looking at this one here where Korlikon is fighting one of the oh he makes up he says that he sword fights his way out of the castle and then after the story he reveals that he made that up because it made the story better yeah but i mean like he's fully colored and the man he's fighting is fully colored but the background is completely black and white yeah so it's sort of high like the use of color is to highlight the action and movement in the story and when we see him in actually in fairy all of the colors are really like light and washed out i like the way that uh Watkins draws the fairies in this they're like 
almost anime-ish. Yeah. And yeah. whereas he draws the rest of the people uh, in a little bit more, more realistic style. Well, yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's interesting because it's kind of telling you that they're not quite human. Yeah, yeah. So they're even, sort of like exaggerated and heightened versions of Yeah, humans. so even when they have their glamour on to make them beautiful humans, you can tell that they're not quite right. Yeah. In this story is when Glorikon drops the first mention of fairies not having souls, which is another thing that by the end of the story is, is pretty ambiguous as to whether or not that's actually true. Yeah, and I think this is another, it's another story that deals with death or people who have an occupation that deals with death. And it also deals specifically with the city as a character. Yeah, and it's another story about a king dying. This is a portrait of a bad king. There's a foretold death in this, which is going to be very important. Because essentially what this whole volume becomes is a, a prophecy of a death foretold, a chronicle of a death foretold, as it were. But I thought it was more like my favorite, the sort of the loci, you know, that sort of, that I concept of like a place as a character, as yeah. like part of a story. Yeah, because it's kind of like the city in this is like sick, and the Carnifex is the illness, and Chloragon essentially helps... The antibodies of the city, which turn out to be the resurrected zombie skeleton of its former rulers, expunge the sickness. Now, what is that term, the literary term? Genius loci? Genius loci. Yeah, for like an, an intelligent place. That's like the, the fancy pants way of saying, this. you know, the setting is, is, is really a character. Oh, I think it's true for all of this. Maybe mm. that's... That's why I thought that this sort of... One of the overarching themes of this story is... The city as an entity. Yeah, and Clarkon draws a lot of attention to the specific ways in which the city has changed since he's been there. How the roadmap that exists in his head is no longer accurate because new roads have been built and buildings have fallen down and he can't navigate through the city just by via his mind like he could before. So the next story, number 53, is the one that I feel doesn't fit quite into the story. And I'm going to let Nate convince me that it does fit into the overarching theme. It's called Hobbes Leviathan. Hell yeah, my boy's back. <laughs> Hob Gadling is in the house, or more specifically the boat, because this story takes place on a ship. This is like the most Decemberist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, once you put like a cabin boy or you're sailing on a ship, I mean, you got to cue the music because it's definitely... A cabin boy that's secretly a girl, too. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah, so this is one of the other travelers. So the first tale in the book was told by, I think, an unnamed dude who just looks like an like a old, like, uh, not Victorian, like an oldie time guy with like a, like a poofy shirt. And then the second tale is told by Chloricon himself. And this tale is told by Jim, who's a young sailor. Right. And I think this one also sort of has that newspaper um, styling. It's it's kind of like an, an, an action, a boy's action story. This feels very much like a, like a Victorian adventure Right, tale. like a penny tale. Definitely. Yeah. So, so Jim is a sailor who... Ran away from home as a young kid and took to the seas and eventually ends up uh, on a ship called the Sea Witch. I think this is also the part of the sort of spiral where 
now we have the frame and then we're into a story and in this story is a secondary story. Yeah. So I have on my notes, I say Hob is back and he's a shipping man exclamation point. Yeah. Well, there, this has been referenced before. We, we, there was that thing in men of good fortune where dream calls him out for being involved in the slave trade and he, he cuts himself off from that. And so this story takes place a while after that, but he's still, I guess still involved in shipping, but this time it's just like, Goods and not people because Hob learned his lesson and he's trying to be a better person. So Hob signs on. He meets Jim who has signed on to the Sea Witch, which is the name of the ship. And it's going from bomb. It's going from Calcutta to England. Yeah, I think they're going to Liverpool specifically. Yeah. So he, so Jim meets Hob and they form this kind of friendship and he's interested in Jim's story and Jim is curious about Hob, who's this rich man who can command an entire ship to take him on, even though it's not a traveling ship. It's a um, merchant ship. Yeah. Originally, the captain is a, totally against it. The captain doesn't like passengers at all. And then he and Hob have a private conversation and the captain relinquishes. But we don't find out immediately what that conversation was about specifically. And Hob is like... You know, we get an outsider's perspective on Hob, and he's he's mysterious and charming and, like, worldly and wise, and he spends a lot of time hanging out with Jim. Is it me, or does the captain, like, specifically look like Herman Melville? I definitely think he's meant to invoke that. There's a lot of Herman Melville stuff in it. Like, the way the crew is described reminded me a lot of the way they describe the crew in... uh, well, we dick. None of them are really important. We get little sketches of, like, a couple of the other characters on the ship. But the only ones that really matter are Hob, James, and a stowaway they they find. Right. A, a sort of nervous, bearded Indian man with glasses. So. Who needs and, to get to Liverpool. And kind of like in an Arabian Nights type of story, he saves himself from being either thrown off the ship or... Left ashore, by or just te- putting the brig by telling a story. So he tells this sort of mythologically sounding story about a, a king who meets a holy a, man, a holy man who gives him a piece of fruit that can give you eternal life. So then the king gives; he's in love with his queen, gives his queen. The apple, which she in turn gives to her lover, who in turn gives to... His lover. Who is a prostitute. Who tries to sell it to the king. Who tries to sell it to the king. And then the king realizes that his wife is unfaithful and doesn't love him as much as he does. So it's kind of implied that he's telling this story... About himself. Well, it's hard to tell because they're dressed in modern clothing. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know if... The stowaway is the king who ate the fruit mm-hmm. and then wanders around like, you know, almost like, a, like an immortal character. Hob seems to immediately recognize something about this guy that the other people can't see. And they have, I think they do have a conversation where they re- acknowledge one another as like being of a piece. And I think it seems pretty clear to me that he, it's not, though it's never outright stated, he is supposed to be the king from the story. I also like that the style, when the stowaway starts to tell his story, the style changes to fit the theme of this sort of like ancient story. 
And then, so all of the panels have these like scrolls around them. And then I really like how in the middle of each of the pages of the story, there's a giant animal. So there's on one page, there's a um, elephant. And on the second page, there's a cobra. cobra. And then there's a tiger. And so they sort of fit into thematically the style of the story. And then when, like, almost like... This is like a cutaway scene. Yeah. So it's it's also like very Kipling and the the stowaway specifically quotes Kipling at one point. It also reminds me of the other story of the Arabian story where he loves his city so much that he wants to put it to save it and he convinces the Sandman to put it in that bottle. It's almost the same style of artwork and it's almost the same sort of yeah storytelling technique yeah it it does definitely recalls ramadan and again this is another story about a king this is a story about a heartbroken king who does who abandons his kingdom i think it's all important thematic foreshadowing right right so it turns out that once they get so they're sailing on the sea and then something happens and the wind stops and they're all worried Mm -hmm. and then this giant Sea serpent well, the shows up. Build up to it is really cool because it stops. They're on this the glass like unmoving sea, but before it can go all rhyme in the ancient mariner, they see just like a torrent of fish explode out of the ocean past them, and then they realize the fish are being chased by this enormous sea serpent. And the art does an amazing like the build up with the the silent sea and then all the fish, and then this just full two-panel spread of this enormous sea serpent. It does a really great job of getting, like, past the scale of this thing and just, like, the overwhelming immensity of this creature. And Jim becomes really hung up on the idea of the sea serpent. He he wants to tell people, and Hob expresses this idea of, like, yeah, like, there's weird things all over, and there's stuff we don't know in the ocean, and you can tell people about this sea serpent... But they're not going to believe you because they don't want to believe you and they don't have any proof. And it's easier for them to just imagine that there are not serpents under the ocean. And it becomes pretty clear that Hob is talking about himself. Hob is the sea serpent. Right. And then I think that it, it's further. He's also giving her a, or him a cautionary tale about what can happen if you talk about some of the weird, mysterious things that you find. Yeah. It's, so it's kind almost of a, as a warning, like, if you start talking about a sea serpent, then you're also going to have to reveal that you're a girl, and you know, and all these different things. Yeah, and it's sort of Hob, Hob's interactions with Jim throughout this is sort of him, like, it's kind of our, our insight into, like, how, how do you survive? How does he survive as an immortal? And it's like he basically relies on people just not being willing to believe things that are fantastical. And then at the end of the story... Hob reveals that he knows that Jim's a girl and sort of connects Jim's false identity with his false identity and with the idea of the serpent. And then we find out that Hob owns the sea witch and is planning to uh, fake the death of his current alias and take on the identity of that alias's nephew. Right. Who does not want to be in shipping anymore. Yeah. And he's going to sell his shipping business and retire from shipping and move on to the next phase of his life. And that's, I think, the story with the king is one way that this connects thematically. This is the other big one. 
because this is a, is a story about death. It's a story about shedding identity. Hobbes essentially holding this like at this point, the boat trip becomes reframed as like a funeral for this incarnation of Hobb as he becomes another incarnation. And this foreshadows some really important stuff that's going to happen in the next volume. And it also, I think in a way foreshadows the end of this volume. Um, that makes sense that, that I can, I can see that I may have missed that, Mm -hmm. but I think this one doesn't have any of the endless in it. Yeah. Dream does not show up. And that's the one I was talking about. Dream is not in this. We, we feel dreams presence through like, because Hob is dreams friend and we know that they have a connection together, but he does not show up physically or I don't think is even referred to. I don't even think Hob mentions his good, his good buddy dream. The only in this. thing I, the only mention I thought maybe was the fact that Hop was going back to Liverpool, which is oh. where the the tavern is, where he meets him yeah. like every hundred years or whatever. Oh, I think he references specifically the events of this story, like not the sea serpent, but like retiring from shipping and like becoming his own nephew. I think this is referenced at one point specifically in Men of Good Fortune. So presumably he just walks off of this dock and into the bar for one of the sequences in Men of Good Fortune. Yeah, that could be. But yeah, I, I agree. Like, I don't think, I think this is more connected to the overall themes than the city one. It's not the most intertwined, especially compared to stuff like Cloricon's Tale or this Ceremon story that we're going to get to in a little bit, but I really, I really like this story. Obviously, I really like Hob. I've talked a lot about how he's one of my favorite characters, but I think this story is really neat and it has this like interesting somber vibe. Like later on in the story, this is called out as just being like a simple boys adventure story. And I think it is something much more sort of weighty and complex than that. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And so- Jim's an interesting character. I think like it is never, no, never really settled on hard whether I think like, I think now, I don't know if this is something that would have happened at the time, but I think reading now is Jim, Jim as the person who is like exploring their gender identity and is not like strongly confirmed to be a girl or a boy and kind of slips back and forth between those two roles is like neat. I like that that's a good character to exist. And I would like to see more of this character, but we don't. But I mean, would be interesting. I think I think I'd like to see more of pretty much all of the characters in this. Like, I while we were talking about Cloricon's tale and like how he's like this weird Harlequin figure, I was like, "Damn, I really wish there were more stories about the Cloricon. He's pretty cool." And like, I want more stories about Jim, and we'll we'll get to them later. But the the dudes from the Necropolis are really cool. Yeah, I think they're all sort of interesting characters. There were two things that really stuck with me about this story. It was the first was the part where. Jim tells the tale of how he was called to the sea mm-hmm. and to be an adventurer. And then he gets on the ship and you realize that it's actually time-wise later than what you think. Because when they're on the ship, they're talking about how their type of ship is being rendered obsolete by technology. Yeah, they, they talk about steamships and Jim is like, I don't like steamships. They suck and they suck a lot of the point of sailing about. And like, again, this is a story about like, the end of the, an age, a right. big change is coming. And I think, like, I think there's a lot of, like, time fluidity in this 
story. I mean, and then you know, you know, the top Hob is old and he's mm. lived a long life and he shows up and he's in a modern suit and he's, you know, clean cut. He's very much like looking like, you know, he's ready to step into like the 20th century. And then you hear this ancient story that could be set like far into the past. Yeah. You know, the story of the Indian king and his unfaithful wife and then you meet jim who's kind of like very much embodies the aesthetic of like the 1800s yeah and that you know essentially boy adventurer and then you realize that it's actually taking place later and there's modern industrialism in there and they're actually on like i think it's telling that they're like actually on one of the last ships of that kind and it is this is the last voyage of the sea witch like it at the end of the story recontextualizes this whole story as like a funeral and then you have to wonder did the sea serpent show up to pay its respects to the last of the great sailing ships because after that like there be no more dragons the sea serpent is gone after the sea witch passes it by yeah and i think it's almost like it is like a nod to like the storytelling techniques of like Joseph Conrad and Herman Melville and those sort of great, or even Rudyard Kipling, like we talked about, like it's kind of the end of that sort of young boy as an adventurer, you know, because yeah. literature starts, you, there's, there's, according to some writers, there's no more mysteries. Mm-hmm. And so it takes, you know, you're moving into like realism and less out of adventurism. And I think that's sort of, revealed in this yeah. story i have a thing part of like I, I i i like those stories i like adventure fiction and so like this spoke to me as this kind of like somber vigil for the idea of adventure say like sail age of sail adventure fiction was like very appealing to me oh the arts by michael zuli who i believe is also the guy who drew men of good fortune i know he drew 24 hours so We've definitely seen his stuff before. I also think, too, I mean, Hav reminds me a lot of, like, destruction. Especially yeah. after reading the volume about his, you know, about his story, you know, with Orpheus. And so kind of get that sort of same adventure or wayward solitary traveler that you get from Hob. I wonder if, like, it would be interesting to see, like, a, a sort of what-if alt-history story where... Because Destruction's whole thing is he's afraid to to make someone else destruction. And you have to wonder, like, because, yeah, I think that visually and, like, through their personality and philosophy, there are a lot of similarities between Hob and Destruction. And I wonder if there is a, if there could be a what-if story where Hob becomes Destruction. That's what I was thinking, because in my mind, like, Morpheus... I mean, he's even a soldier. attachment to Hob and his befriending him... Is almost like he either missed his brother and this was sort of a surrogate for his actual brother mm-hmm. or he was prepping Hob to take that role. I mean, all of those are possible. Dream's motivations are always sort of occluded in some way. Uh, there's also a really good point with part we didn't talk about in this where Hob tells... Jim, that if you don't want to drown, then just don't drown. Right. He's done it a bunch of times. Yeah, well, that that makes complete sense. So, but let's talk about alternative histories, because the next story really reminds me of this kind of weird, perverted type of, not perverted, like sexually, just perverted, like it changes the course of things, 
history of the United States. Yeah, this... um. So this is 54. It's called Golden Boy. And you're really going to have to explain this to me because this has a lot of comic book rich references. Except for like facade. This is probably the most like DC comics issue of Sandman. Uh, I I said I liked Hobbes Leviathan a lot. This is probably my favorite story in this volume uh, for reasons that will become obvious. So the art, before we touch on the actual story, the art is by Mike Allred, or Michael Allred, as he is credited, I believe, in this issue, who is one of my all-time favorite comic book artists. He uh, drew Ecstatics at Marvel. He created Madman. He wrote a, a really great comic that I highly recommend to people called, uh, what is it called? Oh, hold on a second. Is it Red Rocket 7 or Rocket Red? I'm going to look this up and I'm going to edit out this part so, where I look it up. Hold on. I was just going to give a quick synopsis while you're looking it up so you don't have to edit it out. So this is the story of Prez Rickard, who is um, in this alternative timeline. One of the He's the youngest president in the United States and he supposedly succeeds Richard Nixon. So it's happening in the 60s, early 70s. Yeah, so- and it's a story of his rise politically and then, hit, you know, his downfall, Downfall? demise. Sort of? (laughs) Restructuring. So, uh, the comic I was thinking of that I wanted to recommend to people is called, is called Red Rocket 7. It's a comic that Michael Ward wrote and drew about an alien who comes to Earth in, and like, is, gets involved in the history of rock and roll. And he's kind of like a man who fell to Earth, Ziggy Stardust sort of figure. And it's, it's really, really good. Oh, so I want to say, when I said Mike Allred's one of my favorite comics artists at the time, I mean, like, he is up there with Jack Kirby and Mike Mignola and Frank Miller for me. Oh, that's top, top tier. It's got this great, like, super clean line, like, classic pop art aesthetic. If you're familiar with the art that uh, Lichtenstein stole from people, he draws very much in that style. I can see that. And also, like, when you said about, like, the man that fell to Earth... Like, Prez Rickard, it's kind of, he looks like he's, like, a surf guy. Like, he might be, like, Beach Boys from the 70s, kind of. Like, he's got the turtleneck and the blonde, you know, floofy hair. and Yes, he's very hot. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, Prez is a char- pre-existing character from DC Comics. He was created in the 70s by Joe Simon and who's the artist? There's lots of pictures of him, like, sort of hunched over, like, this angle where they show him, like, hunched over. That sort of highlights his, like, good-looking face and his, you know, wind-blown hair and his, like, muscular torso. Yeah. Uh, yes. There are a lot of shots like that. Uh, Jerry Grandinetti is the artist. And so, Joe Simon is best known for collaborating with Jack Kirby to create Captain America. And I think understanding that makes Prez make a lot more sense because Joe Simon is a dude that believed in America. Prez, Prez is an idealized, he's the, he is a teenager who becomes president. And it's very much this like, Joe Simon is an older dude embracing the like youth movement and hippies and this like positivity and utopianism. And Prez is like the living embodiment of that. And he is this idealized, version of an american president i think there's a lot of simon's hopes for like 
the legacy of FDR in Prez mixed up with this sort of like youth culture and like post beatnik kind of thing. Prez ran for four issues in the 70s, not a long run. They were very weird and very dreamlike in their storytelling, which is makes a lot of sense that they would show up in Sandman. The comic was eventually canceled, and then he showed up a couple more times after that. There's a Supergirl story with him. There's a sequel to this story, actually, a one-shot called Smells Like Teen President <laughs> that is about Prez's possible son looking for him after he disappears. And that one brings up this idea that, like, Reagan and... George H.W. Bush were like a psychic cancer on the soul of America, and that's what killed Prez. And in, so in the original Prez comics, uh, Boss Smiley, who's the, the villain in this, who's sort of a diabolical, like literally diabolical, like devil figure in this, uh, is more of just like a Dick Tracy character where he's just a corrupt mayor whose head happens to look like a, one of those smiley face buttons. Well, that's what I thought. But this sort of this story reframes Prez as this like American fable. He becomes essentially like an American messiah. He's like a Jesus or a Buddha figure, and Boss Smiley is reframed as this symbol of temptation and corruption and complacency that haunts Prez throughout his presidency. And. uh... It's really good. I really like this story a lot. I thought what was interesting was, I mean, obviously there's a comment about Richard Nixon. And then there's also a commentary about the Kennedys saying, like, you know, how people thought the Kennedys were idyllic and they mm -hmm. wanted that sort of, you know, the Camelot. But Prez is better because he's, you know, he has ideas and he's righteous, but he's not, like... A hedonist like the Kennedy. Yeah, that so <laughs> So in this story, much like in the original Prez comics, Prez is a kid from this town called Steadfast that has all of these clocks in it, and none of them run on time. In the original comics, Prez is spurred to fix the uh clocks because he's the president of the race club like the race car club. And one of his times gets fucked up because none of the stopwatches agree on what time it is. <laughs> but so he goes around and, like, in a very real and material way, helps the city by setting all the clocks. And this sets him up to eventually run for president. And there's this, like, very, like, beautiful, beautifully naive and utopian idea here that lowering the voting age to 18 would lead to the youth revamping the political system in America and allowing teenagers to run for Congress, and then they would pass an amendment that allows teenagers to run for president. And then Prez, as a teenager, as like an 18-year-old, would become the president of the United States, and he would be this, like, perfect, idealistic president who would, like, fix everything for everyone. And it's it's a little sad in how naive it is, and I think this story does a better, a good job of, like, realizing that this is a myth and should be treated as such. Yeah, I think it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of uh, overly hopeful, maybe. But it's, the original press comics are very much overly hopeful. I think this acknowledges that, the contradiction more. So Boss Smiley shows up, he's the prince of the world, he's this man with a head that looks like a smiley face, 
And he basically offers to hand Prez the presidency if Prez is willing to work for him. And Prez turns him down. And then on the, like, I think it's supposed to be on the eve of election night. He's visited by the ghost of Richard Nixon. Maybe the ghost or maybe just (laughs) Richard Nixon or maybe Boss Smiley in the form of Richard Nixon. Unclear. And Nixon gives him this talk about, like, you really can't make any difference. You're one man. Like, you're going to be the president, and everyone's going to hate you, and then you're not going to be the president anymore, and it's not going to really have mattered, and people will miss you after you're not the president anymore, and some other guy will be in the office, and they'll all hate them, and he calls out Kennedy for not being able to keep it in his pants, and Prez, like, counters by saying, like, he is going to make a difference, and he is going to matter, and there's this, like, I really like the character of Prez, but I feel a lot of the same way about him that I feel about Scrooge McDuck, which is like their Prez is the idealized president and Scrooge McDuck is the idealized capitalist. And they're appealing figures who, who, who latch onto this like sense of hope and this need for hope in you for, for people to be better and this desire to see people be good. But in a way they're kind of insidious because presenting the idea that there could be an idealized president or an idealized capitalist papers over a lot of the inherent problems with the system because the system doesn't reward you for acting like Prez. It doesn't reward you for acting like Scrooge McDuck and in fact incentivizes you to act like the opposite of them. And even if those, by some like miraculous, like trick of the fates, a person like either of them actually existed, it really wouldn't make all that much of a difference. And the story does acknowledge that, which I think is a thing it has up on the original Prez stories. But yeah, so Prez becomes the president, and he starts to to fix the world, and he, like, disar- has, like, campaigns for nuclear disarmament. He does a lot of great things. He does all the things you would say, like, oh, I wish we had a president that would do this. If I was president, I would do all these things. And Prez does them. And... But he's also, at the same time that he's doing all these things, he's still haunted... And you can't tell if Boss Smiley is an actual person at, in the beginning. If he's an actual person who's tormenting him or he's a manifestation of, of Prez's mind, like sort of, mm-hmm. you know, some doubt that's in there, or if he's like a ghost or a spirit. Somehow he keeps bothering Prez and wearing on him during his whole presidency. Yeah. He's, I mean, like, it's unclear what he is in the world of this story. Metaphorically, he's very much like a representation of of the system and the banality of evil and like the the forces of apathy. So Prez takes up with his high school sweetheart and they begin a romance. Mm-hmm. And this is when things sort of take a weird turn. And they're dating. Are they married? Or are they going to get married? They're going to get married. They're going to get married. And she is assassinated by a woman, almost like a Hinkley kind of thing, that... She is obsessed with the boxer Ted Grant. And for those who know comics, Ted Grant is the superhero of the Wildcat. But he's a very sad Wildcat in this one. He's got droopy ears and he's kind of moping. He spends his time at the bar. So she's murdered by this woman. Mm -hmm. And then there's a scene where Prez... Spends time with Wildcat to try to yeah, understand what's going on. President spends time with Wildcat. He talks to this woman. He tries to save her from the death penalty. Like, Prez is this, like, 
absurdly magnanimous and forgiving figure. Like I said, he 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 is supposed to be like an American messiah. He is he is like well, he's all American because even at the dream sequence where he's visited by Boss Smiley, he's actually watching a baseball game. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's watching a baseball game, and this sort of tempting character Boss Smiley shows up. Yeah, Boss Smiley after after his fiance's death tries to tempt Prez again by offering to return her to life. And Prez again resists his temptation. So then he's done his term, and even if even though they want him to stay on, and they want to change the law so that he can be the president for the rest of his life, he after he does his two terms, he decides to go back to being a clockmaker mm-hmm. in his small town. And then there's a sad, like, sort of three panels where they're, everyone's saying, stay, we want you to stay. And then they show the Prez with his... Prez shirt on? For yeah, it's a thing from the comics. He has the, these shirts that say have his face on them and they say Prez for president. And there's a whole, like, the way that the, the original comics get around him being able to actually have adventures is that everybody wears those shirts. And so when he walks around in public, he just looks like some teen that loves Prez. Right. And then the third panel is Wildcat, who's very sad and dejected and drinking himself to death in a bar. Yeah, there, there's a lot of, like... Parallels drawn between Wildcat and Prez. They're both these, like, you know, figures of idealization in this version of America. Oh, that's the other thing we didn't talk about. Like, when the story is being introduced, it is very explicitly framed as coming from another, a different America on another Earth, where, inst- <laughs> where instead of Jimmy Carter, we get Prez, Prez Rickard. Yes. And then after he retires, he and he. Decides to go on a sort of walkabout to try to free his mind and come to grips of what's going on. And then is he missing or he just walks out of his life and people don't know what happened? Yeah, he just walks out of his life back into America, into the heartland to wander. He becomes a fully mythological figure. They, they specifically draw parallels between him and Elvis sightings. <laughs> Some people think that him and Elvis are working together to fight crime. And then at some point he runs into death. Mm-hmm. And they have a conversation, and it's kind of like she's like, he's like, "Do I know you?" And she's like, "Not yet." Yeah. So, and then I guess talk about the ending. So Prez dies. Everyone knows he dies, even though no one knows how or when he dies. And every, the the country begins to mourn him because he he is America. He is the Mer- American dream. He he's the living embodiment of of the hope of like the you know the youth movement. And he goes to something approximating heaven, and on the throne is the prince of the world, Boss Smiley. Well, it's clearly meant to be like the pearly gates, but instead of having, like, God, it has wings with a smiley face on it. And then here, Boss Smiley is not a man with a head that looks like a smiley face. He's a man whose head just is a smiley Like, it is the the watchman button floating over a suit, and that is what this... Like, avatar of Boss Smiley looks like, or whatever. This form he has taken to greet Prez in the afterlife and attempt one last time to press him into his service. And before that, as he's walking with death to the afterlife, they have a conversation and Prez brings up the watchmaker thing. The idea that you find, like, it's this 
thought exploration about like god and it's this idea that like you find a watch in the desert and you assume someone made it and then prez adds this corollary where it's like if it's broken you pick it up pick it up and try to fix it and that's sort of like this summation of his philosophy like prez just always tried to fix things to make the world better and in his confrontation with ross smiley dream appears to sort of act as his advocate and he's got like a business suit he's got sort of like a distressed kind of 80s like don johnson look going on he's got like a blazer cape that and like a casual t-shirt yeah he's wearing his normal dream t-shirt and jeans outfit but his jacket is sort of flows into like his normal like shadowy robes yeah and in this conversation prez finds out that there are other worlds and there are other americas and he specifically says there are as a desert full of watches and he walks off into the multiverse to look visit other Americas and to fix other watches. And um, it's, a, it's a very beautiful, hopeful ending. Are we seeing, like, references to the Watchmen? I mean, is that smiley face just well, the smiley happenstance that... Boss Smiley in the Prez comics predates Watchmen by about 12 years. I think they're... But the, and the clock stuff is already in Prez... I don't know if it's deliberately references to Watchmen, but it, in a way, this story can kind of read as a counterpoint to Watchmen, where it is like, no, it's worth it to help. Like, I'm sorry you are sad, Dr. Manhattan, but if you should try and fix the broken watches you find. I also think it's kind of... But I think that the... I do want to say that I don't think the end message of Watchmen is, don't help and nothing can make any difference. The end message of Watchmen is... We should all work together to help each other, and we don't need superheroes to do it for us. I think the part where Morpheus shows up and he's talking to President or talking about the clocks and things like that, I think it's kind of mildly foreshadowing the fact, and I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say this now because it's been nearly 20 years, that Morpheus' time is coming to an end. I mean, we're seeing a lot of portents and omens about his doom, and this is another story about... A essentially a king who is dying and leaving his realm and this is like we get another glimpse of like well what happens once you're gone a lot of ways this is thematically very similar to august about like what happens when it's all built on one guy and that one guy is gone and like what do you do afterwards and like this anxiety about legacy and death but i feel like Going to the going almost directly into the next story, which is called Saramence, it's kind of like this is like the ultimate story about death. Yeah, I mean, it's about apprentices whose job is to um, handle people's internments or their final repose in a city that's basically a necropolis. I want to talk a little bit more about. Prez just for a second because I think one of the things that's really interesting I mentioned earlier when I was like introducing the context for Prez that uh, Joe Simon used to work with Jack Kirby and I think it's an interesting to look at the fact that both Kirby and Simon in the 70s created comics for DC about blonde haired boy adventurers and the one Joe Simon created was this almost impossibly hopeful and utopian Prez comic. And the one that Jack Kirby created was Commandy, the last boy on Earth. 
which is a story about survival in a harsh and alien future. It's a post-apocalyptic story. And it's, like, there, there are different responses to the 70s. And to, like, there are different attempts to try and create a story about the youth. I think it really, like, highlights the, the tension that was present at the time. Where it's like, we could go either way. We could go to Prez's world or we could go to the apocalypse where, you know, barbarian tiger men are fighting over nuclear weapons. And we didn't really end up in either of them. That's interesting. I mean, I don't really know because it's kind of like, it's a comment on the sort of culture of the time, which Mm -hmm. was like these hedonistic hippies. But it's also like Prez sort of really, he's a hippie and he's progressive but he also sort of has these old-fashioned sort of 1950s values you know he's steadfast he comes from steadfast yeah he's he's very superman like boy scout but he's got like a more progressive drive but it also really highlights like this like the sort of hollowness a lot of a lot of that like hope there was no concrete plan to change anything there was no underlying ideology it was not inherently radical Prez becomes the president. He works within the system. And there was just this, like, idea that, like, well, the people who are in charge of the system are bad. And if we're just better people, then everything will be better. But you, they weren't better people. And once the hippies got in charge, they were just as bad as the people that came before them. I think putting on the lens of what currently is happening in society now, people are realizing that the hippies are now the baby boomers who are now the capitalists who are now afraid of the progressive, you know, Mm -hmm. desire for change that millennials have. And I think that's sort of, you know, like if today's politician is the equivalent of the boss smiley and the richard nixon role in this story and then these sort of new young progressive socialistic leaning you know politicians are the prezes then that sort of reflects what's happening now yeah yeah i think it's interesting though because i I think that boss smiley is trying to influence prez but not by like giving him what he wants by saying you should protect what's currently here, which is this giant capitalist machine that Prez, not because he's idealistically against capitalism, but because he has such a strong moral compass between what is right and wrong mm-hmm. that he always wants to do what's right. Yeah. So he's not necessarily trying to improve society. He, by proxy, he does improve society because he does the right thing. He's trying to improve society, but he's not interested in changing it. Right. And while I think an important lesson that this story sort of shows is that, like, you can improve all you want, but if there's no real structural change, then everything just sort of slides back along the path of least resistance. Yeah. And that's an important thing to think about now, that people are you know, fired up and are trying to change things that we need to, we need to do it on a fundamental level or it's not going to amount to much. But I think this is also sort of reinforces this concept of the like idea of Morpheus where he doesn't necessarily want to do what he thinks is the right thing to do. He wants to do what he thinks is going to do the thing that works the best. 
Yeah. So he's not trying to like improve relationships with humans. He's just trying to like keep the straight and narrow going. And his moral compass is not as strong as Prez's, but he doesn't want like when Delirium wants to change things up or, mm-hmm. you know, they want to try to find destruction. He's kind of like, nah, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be involved in this. We shouldn't be involved in that. But, but we- yet he'll always come in and help people but only if it helps them and then also keeps things the way that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wish we had gotten a Prez Vertigo series about him traveling through the multiverse to different Americas. That would have been really cool. I'm sad. There was a Prez relaunch, actually, uh, fairly recently, that was about a different character, a, a teenage girl named Beth Ross, who becomes elected president after an embarrassing viral video of her getting her hair stuck in a corndog fryer. Goes off, and the OG Prez shows up to, I think he's her vice president? He shows up to, like, advise and mentor her. And in that, his name is Preston Rickard. He isn't just named President. I think we are pretty close to the time when we have, like, an internet celebrity president. Yeah. It's inevitable at this time. Some Instagram influencer is going to make that jump into, like, politics or something. Yeah. Keyboard I mean, hat for president. Exactly. We're, we're nearly there. When are we going to get our first viral president? <laughs> well, yeah. You'd have to when are we going to get our first branded president? <laughs> yeah, are we close to the year of the adult depend <laughs> diaper? I think we are. All right, let's move on to ceremonies. So uh, this is kind of like... I also like this story it, a lot. It's very weird. It's yeah. about, like I mentioned, it's about this man named Petrofax, who is an apprentice. In fact, Petrofax means apprentice. Yeah, and Petrofax is the apprentice to Claproth. Does that mean anything? <laughs> I didn't look that up. I didn't look that up, but I know they they live in a city, Lotharge. Lotharge is a term for a silver stone, which is, in fact, the element lead. Mm-hmm. So it has something to do with that. So they live in a necropolis, and he's an apprentice, and he's learning about the different types of burials, and he starts the story off by having to, he goofs off in class and he's sent to this air burial and he meets these three um, morticians or whatever they're, they are in the town. Mig, Irma, Herma, I think. And this is where. And Scroyle. This is what I was talking about where it's like you have the frame up and then you have the oh, no. story of the Saramet and then within the story, Petrofax meets three men who are having this air burial, and as they're waiting for the birds to devour the corpse, they sit down and they share a meal, and then they, within the story of the story, they each one tell a story. Yeah. So the first story, they tell a story about the hangman, and then there's the story where Destiny shows up and he destroys a different necropolis because they're not respectful enough of the... The role of a necropolis. And then the third story is about Mistress Velitus, who herself tells the story of four different tales. So it's... Right. The first story is the story of the hangman. Then this another person tells a story about meeting destruction. And destruction tells a story about the destruction of the previous necropolis and the way that Litharge got its, like, charter to be a necropolis. And a necropolis is an entire city... That is just devoted to administering burial rites. 
Mm-hmm. And they live off of food that is offered to the dead, and they wear clothes from the dead, and they sleep on slabs. And then the last story is that Master Herma tells the story about how he heard a story from his mistress, who was also Clapperoth's teacher. I thought, just to quickly go back to destruction, when he shows up, he is the hobo yes. that he was at the end of the other standalone stories. Where Brief he, Lives. Brief Lives, where he leaves, he packs up his room in a little bindle, and he like hangs out, he's got his red coat on, and he starts traveling around the world. So you sort of realize that when he left where he was when he left the island, he mm. went to different places, and one of the places that he went to was this necropolis, Letharge. Yeah. So that's Which also makes me kind of want a destruction series where he travels around to different worlds. Yeah, and he's kind of like, hey, guys, what are you doing? And there's lots of subtle world building in this, just like references to things and the rules of the necropolis. They have clients. People are hired to... They hire people to administer these rights. Petrifax is like essentially traded to the necropolis in exchange for his father getting a tomb within the city. Also, it's interesting because this sort of really reminded me of the morticians from American Gods. Because it turns out that if you live in the necropolis and you want to leave, you can go out into the real world and become a mortician. Yeah, and even the worst uh, morticians from the necropolis are better than the best ones in the rest of the world. And so the first story, the hangman story is about how in this small town no one wants to be the hangman but you're made an offer when you're about to be hanged where you can choose to die or become the hangman but you have to be hanged before Before your death or the town will lose its right to have a hangman and the narrator's ancestor Billy Scutt becomes, he was a resurrectionist who was stealing dead bodies and selling them to the uh, doctors. He is going to be hanged to death. And he becomes the new hangman. And he's the best hangman in the history of the town. And he becomes sick. And eventually through subterfuge. Avoids being hanged before his death. And dies peacefully in his home. In his bed with his family. I love how the way that he tricks he the town. Is by in essence hanging himself. Yeah. So he ha- so he uses the rope to make himself stand up. So when the townspeople come to hang him, that's his proof that he's not sick enough to die. So they don't take him away and hang him. Yeah. So because destiny is inescapable, even if you think you're escaping it, you haven't. He did hang before he died. It just wasn't the thing that killed him. Right. Right. So I thought that was interesting. I like this. I thought this story was very interesting. It almost had a Victorian vibe to it. Especially the way that they were dressed. And when you realize that they're dressed in the clothes that they get from the dead, then you kind of realize that they're all... It's sort of like this sort of shop kind of like hand-me-down society where they're dependent on another society's demise to keep their city alive. Yeah, they're all sort of... They're all dressed old-timey, but it's different periods. Petrifax is sort of dressed like an 18th century dude. Like, he's got a real pole dark vibe uh-huh. to his outfit. But then, like, Claproth looks like a midi- like a Victorian undertaker. And 
Mig, who's the guy who tells the story about Billy Scott, is sort of dressed like an Old West guy. And, like, they're all old styles of dress, but none of them are dressed like they're from the same time right, period. Right, And then the next story is the one about Destruction, right? Yes. So Destruction shows up and basically just tells a dude in the... In, the, in Litharge, that there used to be another necropolis, and the Endless showed up there. It's not explicitly stated, but they're very clearly the Endless. And Destiny asks for the ceremonies and book they hold there, and this seems to be the lead-up to the funeral for the first despair. Right. And I think it's interesting that the reason why Destiny gets so worked up is because... They did not take care of their books, and their books were falling apart, mm-hmm. and, and that just sets him off. Yeah, this necropolis has become greedy and apathetic, and they don't respect the rights, and they're operating just for money. And in punishment for their negligence, the city is destroyed, and a small village, which is Litharge, is given a charter and grows into becoming the new necropolis. And again, we see this is very – this is foreshadowing. We see something destroy, old, destroyed – and something new become that old thing, but it's still different. And I think it's sort of, like you said, it sort of portends this concept of when one of the Endless dies, perfectly something would happen. The Endless would die and another manifestation of that Endless would take its place. Yeah. Now we know with Destruction, he chose not to replace himself. He chose not to die, he chose essentially. To, yeah. Because he and Hob were very similar. This I had never thought about this before we talked about it, but I definitely think, like, the universe wanted Hob to be the new Destruction, and it didn't happen because Destruction abandoned his post. I kind of felt like, because Destruction is depicted sort of with that, like, orange hair and yeah. that kind of sort of ropes Pierrean kind of outfit, that maybe, like, Hob is his son? Maybe. And I, then I kind of got the impression that if that, if Hob was Destruction's son, then like maybe Hob's fondness for Jim, who has the same hair color. And then it's the same thing because like when Jim's mom is talking about, she never talks about her father, but she says that her father is from the sea. Oh, so, I didn't even put that so together. So I was like, oh, maybe, is he like saying like, Jim is Hob's child? Child and does, Jim have the same ability to keep reinventing himself into a new manifestation, and that's why Hob is sort of guiding him. Yeah, I don't think that Hob is Destruction's son. But when Hob first embraces their immortality, they've just come from a war. Like, I think in a way, like, Hob is marked by Destruction. Yes. In the same way that, like, Daniel is marked by Dream. That's why I think, like, almost... But is not Dream's son. If you carried the story further than the actual volumes, you might come to the conclusion that Hob either will replace Destruction or he is very... He is so similar to Destruction, that's why Morpheus likes him. Maybe. I definitely think, like... I feel like it has to be intentional, the, the sort of parallels and similarities between the two characters. I mean, they're drawn so similar that... For a second, you can almost mistake Destruction in this volume for Hob. He's just, like, longer hair and a, like, less filled-out beard. I think so. I also like the fact that Destruction, like, all the other Endless 
are very physically and emotionally depicting the emotions that they're supposed to be. Yeah. But Destruction is so chill. He just looks like a dude. Yeah, it's like like Delirium is chaotic and death. You know, yeah. you know, it, Destruction for being Destruction, you would think he would be like frenetic and ex- you know, like mm-hmm. there would be this energy. He just has this sort of very zen vibe that he like throws out. Yeah. Well, I think it's because like he sort of embraces this idea that like Destruction is just a kind of change. And change is not necessarily a bad or violent thing. Uh, what was I going to say? So that's... Oh, so, and then the, the last story in this story... Is the story of the mistress. Yeah, who finds the ceraments and book. And she, she breaks a flask of embalming fluid as a child and is scared of being reprimanded. And runs through the necropolis and f- happens upon the ceraments in the book hidden under the necropolis. And that, this fully confirms that, like, the purpose of the necropolis is it serves as the place to, to contain these books for the ritual that comes with the death of an endless. And a voice talks to her and fi- essentially fixes her problem and restores the embalming fluid. But because she doesn't have faith in it, it destroys her hand as payment. And right. then, Towards her death, she goes looking for the room again and is ambiguous as to whether or not she finds it, but she dies with her hand restored. Right. And then the ritual is over and the, the three morticians leave. Yeah, and they're kind of like, almost like a version of the fates. They tell their story mm-hmm. and then the story's over and then you move on to the next, which is sort of, then you return back to the world's end and they're still talking, and there's some kind of confusion, and then something happens. Oh, the the art for sermons is by Shay Anton Pensa. I just wanted to say that. Well, I, mean, I want to give credit to the yeah, artist. Yeah, no, no, no. It's important because the different styles of the artwork are very important to the sort of feeling of the story. So you have this sort of very gothic-looking artwork. It's very sparse. Lots of blues and grays and whites and blacks sort of kind of giving this sort of somber impression of like, you know, they're grave diggers, they're, you know, morticians. Yeah. So then we go back to the world's end, like you said. And this is, I kind of like this one part where Charlene, you don't hear from Charlene other than she's like, oh, I hurt my head. And then she goes into this rant, this sort of feminist rant about how there's not any strong female characters in this, in all of these stories, and then even Jim says, "Well, what about my story where I'm a woman?" And he was, she was like, "No, that's definitely whole, like an adventure story for young boys." Yeah, and then she kind of, I think, rightfully is like, also sort of the whole point is that you you're not a woman. I kind of think it's also like a nod to like Neil Gaiman acknowledging the criticism along the way of Sandman about. Either his use of female characters or his lack of really strong female characters. Yeah. I mean, Charlene herself is a feminist. And it's very clear. And I think also, like, when she calls that out, she is sort of saying, like, you're all men in a tavern and you're talking these tales. Mm-hmm. And then she... Um, I want to say another... I do really like... Whether intentional or not, I really like Jim as, like, a low-key positive depiction of a gender fluid person uh but yeah then charlene go basically goes on and talks about how she's i mean not clearly depressed and deeply dissatisfied with her life and bored and apathetic and 
lacking direction and motivation and she doesn't have a story and she's, you know, I, I think kind of heartbreakingly relatable in this moment. But I think it's also, I mean, it's clear later on when she decides to stay mm. that she has decided either being influenced by these stories or coming to the realization because of these stories that she is not happy in her life, she decides to make a change. And then when she talks to the tavern keeper, who's also a woman, she mm. says, well, I did the same thing. Yeah. I just walked out of my life and I came here. And then when I'm satisfied, I'll just go back to my life. It's going to be there waiting for me. Yeah. And she sort of makes the same decision. Yeah. It's interesting that we don't ever... I mean, she tells her story through the context of her trying to say she has no story. And then it seems like we don't get a story from Brant until the very end when it turns out the whole thing is Brant's story. Right. So let's talk about the funeral procession because this is really a major part of the volume. So there's a break in the storm and everyone goes to the window to watch and they see a bunch of giant figures cloaked in darkness and stars who we recognize uh, having a funeral procession. They're carrying a coffin. We see... Uh, you see Merv, and you see the Wrath Detective, and you see very graphically, you see Lucifer with his white wings. Yeah, I don't think that, see, is that Lucifer? I thought that was supposed to be one of the angels who's in hell. I thought it was Lucifer. Uh, but and we you s- see delirium and destruction, and you see... We see despair, fast, despair. and delirium. Uh, yeah, there's... And Martin Tenbones is hanging on in the end. Yeah, all the dreams are there. Thor is there. Matthew is there. The two characters whose absence are, are conspicuous are Dream and Desire. It seems pretty clear that one of the Endless has died, I but it is unclear which one it is I at this moment. I thought that one of the pallbearers was Desire. I think they're the Corinthian and... I think they're the Corinthian, Lucifer, and Lucian. Oh, see, I thought that that was desire. But that, I mean, it's really up to interpretation. Oh, Fiddler's Green's also in the procession. Of course. And then you see on an, on another page, you see despair, uh, delirium, and death. And they're sort of dressed in their... They're dressed in the style of when Dream is in his mm-hmm. room and he has the paintings of them so they're sort of dressed in a way that dream would see them yeah which i think is interesting and they're obviously mourning and then you see the crescent moon that's being slowly covered with blood the blood red moon and then all the people are like what's going on we we don't understand this but they know it's like a funeral procession grant brant recognizes death and fall immediately falls in love with her so, see, that's what confused me about going back to the story of the Tale of Two Cities. When people say that that's not death. I think it's death. If, yeah, because he sees her and he's like, oh, I remember her. And then he immediately falls in love with her. Which is what he do- what happens in the city story. Where the man sees the woman and he immediately falls in love with her. Yeah. I, I, I think, believe that it is death in Tale of Two Cities. And the man is choosing to leave the dream and live or stay in the dream and die. Yeah, and I think it was like, I mean, if you look closely, you can see the characters. I mean, they're sort of stylized. Like, you just sort of see like an orange circle and you know that that's Merv. But it's interesting. I mean, it's very beautiful. Like, it starts out with like a rainbow and then it sort of goes into this sort of 
solar system and then you see all the procession of the characters moving through and then you see the coffin and you see the blue roads on it and you're kind of like and then the covering is like a ratty gray fabric yeah and then again like in a way this kind of reframes this whole thing as like whether or not the characters realized it they were at a wake yeah and i think like well when you get to the next one it's very clear because it's definitely arranged in a funeral style you know mm-hmm. and then now the storm is broken and everyone is going to leave uh Charlene Pet- decides to stay. Petr- yes. Petrofax decides to oh, leave. Oh, that's the best part. <laughs> He's going to hang out with the centaur who's been hanging around for a while. I love that because it's so, like, upbeat. He's like, just jump on. And, like, Petrofax just jumps on the centaur. And they just, like. And, yeah, and Claproth's <laughs> like, what are you doing, you fool? <laughs> Come back here. You're going to be expelled. And then he just rides off with his new centaur buddy. But it's kind of like he not only quits his job, but he, like, comes right out of the closet and just jumps on a centaur and goes yeah. to leave, like, his best life. But I think that they all sort of have this positive, like, energy, except for Bran. And Glorican. Right. Glorican's like, I have to go tell Queen Mab everything that happened. I'm the unhappiest soul in the world. And then they're like, I thought you didn't have a soul. And he's like, I don't know. I think and feel and stuff. If it's not a soul, it might as well be. Which again, like raises the ambiguity about like what Chloricon's whole deal is. But then also he is kind of like, he seems negative, but it's almost like, you know how you give yourself a backhanded compliment? He's kind of like saying like, whoops, I got to go do this. But then it's mm-hmm. kind of like a nod to like, oh, I'm off to have more adventures. Yeah, it's also like, oh, I can't stay. I'm so very important. Yes. I have to talk to the queen. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa is me. And then they're like, are you going to go visit your sister? And he's like, I don't know, maybe, probably, sure, sometime. But it's always an excuse. That's like a recurring thing, like this excuse of why he can't do something. It's like, oh, I have to go visit my sister. Mm. But then it's like, oh, you didn't visit your sister for 50 years. Like, Yeah, so- when the queen tries to send him on his mission, he says he has to visit his sister. And she's like, no. And then when people ask him if he's going to go visit his sister, he's like, well, I have to talk to the queen. <laughs> so he never really does like what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. So then, then you realize that the whole frame up of what you thought was the frame up of them at the world's end is actually a story of the actual frame up, which is... Brant telling the story of the world's end and all the stories that he heard to the bartender in Chicago. In Chicago, we find out that when he got out of the world's end, Charlene had basically been erased from existence. Right, but he remembers her, and I think that's the important thing: is if you remember something, then it can't ever be erased. Yeah, and then he. So again, like he is telling a story in a bar. This is his story. Even though he doesn't tell it in the world's end, or in the in it world's end, and then this the bartender says she believes him, and he he walks off, and that's the that's the end of the story. But I think it sets up for what's coming, which is sort of the, somebody's going to die. Yeah, it's kind of like, and if you're, if I mean, you, you can don't figure know, it out. You don't know by now. But even I if think, we tell you, it's I think not- at the time the story came out, it is supposed to be. You are supposed to wonder if it's going to be dream or desire. Well, I think because they both kind of they're 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 both set up to possibly face their doom. It is very likely that there could be a twist where desire dies. 
instead of dream, even though like the end of brief lives seems to heavily imply that that dream is done. It's key. Yeah, and I kind of think like it's like even even though I had read the series once already, and I'm currently rereading it, and I know what happens. I kind of had this sort of hopeful kind of thought in my mind that like maybe Dream won't die. I mean, I know he's going to die and I know what's going to happen and we know it's, you know, that it's inevitable and it's foreshadowed and the kindly ones have sort of been nodding to it through the whole series, but you're kind of like, you don't want it to happen. And I think that's the good, you know, the storytelling that's really sort of compelling about this series. Yeah, it puts us in the mind space of Dream at the end of Brief Lives where he's like, I have to talk to my son. I have to go kill my son. And, like, he knows what's happening and he doesn't want it to happen, but it has to. And the story has time and again, like in the Billy Scott story, told us over and over, like, your destiny is inescapable. Once you set it something in motion, it's in motion. And you are you cannot stop it a lot of the time. And I think it's almost like... This sort of Greek tragedy cycle. So you have the story of Orpheus and you have what happens in Morpheus. And then you know that, you know, because you're only halfway through that cycle, that there's another part. And that other part has to deal with Morpheus. Yeah. Because it's very clear that in this Greek cycle, this tragedy cycle... That, you know, it's the father and the son, and then now it goes, it goes father, son, and now it's back to the father where it ends. So, and then within that cycle of the father and the son, there's a slight rebirth, which is the hopeful part of the tragedy. So when we move into the next volume, which is the kindly ones, it's very clear that this is another arch of the Greek tragedy which is happening, which is specifically about Morpheus. It's also interesting. I hadn't ever really noticed this until this read-through, this neat little structural thing he does. So you remember in Fables and Reflections, the stories are broken up into the the two different um, styles of stories. There's There's the Distant Mirrors ones, and what are the other ones called? A Convergence. And this is a Convergence story expanded into a whole volume. And essentially, the next volume, The Kindly Ones, is a Distant Mirrors story expanded into a whole volume. And I think it's like, even though this is considered a standalone, the last ten pages of this volume clearly are very important to the overarching story of Morpheus. Yeah, I mean, this is what I've been saying since the beginning. Every time we've talked about one of these standalone or one-shot stories is that there really aren't. None of these are standalones. Every story in Sandman ties back thematically into the overarching plot of Sandman and into Dream's character arc and into the the arcs of the other characters. I mean, this is a, this is a say what you want. I think about this comic. I know there are people that don't like Sandman, and there are real criticisms of like some of the way it handles more sensitive issues and the fact that. I think some of the stories are a little narratively inert at times, but like this is a masterfully constructed comic book series. I think what's interesting about this series is that one of the biggest parts of this whole entire story are the kindly ones who are mostly invisible. Yeah. 
So more often than not, we see characters reflecting them rather than them actually showing up in person. And I think when you get to the next volume, you're like, oh, it all clicks. Like, okay, the kindly ones. And then you also realize that this sort of three prong like view of women of the kindly ones is very important to Neil Gaiman in a lot of the work that he does. Yeah, I mean, I we'll, we'll talk about it at some point on this podcast, but I'm th- there are characters that show up and are central to Ocean at the End of the Land who are definitely the kindly ones. Well, lots of people say that that is, you know, that novella, which would fit right into what we do, so we'll get to that at some point, is almost like a Sandman story. I, I consider it a Sandman story, in my mind, at, the, at least. Yes, and I, th- I think that's the beauty of the series is the subtle way that it, these stories are woven together. And though some of them are kind of stilted and some of them kind of are more like interludes and actual plot-driven, you know, devices that move this very long plot point along, every single piece of the Sandman is important because it fills that ultimate, that full volume of what the story is. You can't really get to the point of Morpheus's death without looking at like Rose and the Corinthian and all of those other sort of seemingly superfluous parts, you know, Merv and Lucius and, you know, Princess Barbie. They're all really important to the backstory and the, you know, the path that gets Morpheus to where he finally ends up. And then what happens after Morpheus's demise. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, so that's up next, the kindly ones. Yeah, but before that, uh, what are we going to read? We're going to be reading Three Blind Mice, the novella from Agatha Christie, which I wanted to read because... I'm at nearly at the end of my Hugo Award list. I have two books left. Kim Stanley Robinson. Stanley Robinson, the two remaining parts of the Mars trilogy, which I'm reading now. And then my goal is to read all of the Agatha Christie novels, but to read them by the detective. So each series of each detective to read them. So to kind of jumpstart that like mindset of reading a lot of detective fiction. I thought it would be interesting to look at one of her standalone novellas. I also think it's good because we've talked about a lot of genre fiction on here. Science fiction, fantasy, um, horror, and we have not really discussed a mystery yet. And I think uh, it'll be nice to to fill in that blind spot. I think there's sort of a resurgence in interest in Agatha Christie's very British detective stories there's the um the new Hercule Poirot the tv show the ABC murders that that John Malkovich is doing there's the the movies that you know there's the new series of movies that are coming out with Kenneth Branagh and his fantastic mustache and there's sort of like this sort of resurgence and this awareness of this style that Christie kind of made iconic this British detective cozy mystery we could talk about it we'll talk about it on the episode but i find that to be really interesting because you would think that wouldn't be the case now right because that style of detective right it gets supplanted with the rise of noir where we start to acknowledge the like moral ambiguity and that 
this sort of like perfect logical paragon of mystery solving doesn't exist. And these guys that solve the mysteries are fallible men with, or women with, with real like problems. And we get like, you know, it stops being the consulting detective who travels around the world who solves the mystery and it becomes like the insurance investigator who I becomes think... the, the guy who solves the mystery. And you would think now, considering how grim a lot of the the atmosphere is in this time period we're living in, we wouldn't want we would want those more ambiguous heroes. And we do get a lot of that, but it seems like we had a run of those in the sort of mid to late two thousands. We had stuff like Mad, not, not that that's a mystery, but we had stuff like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, and now we're we're running back to these sort of more more simple, idealized heroes. I think in my mind, detective fiction, it while it is a genre, there's very clear paths. There's the sort of British detective mystery series is, you know, kind of things like Christie and Sherlock Holmes. And then you come to the United States and you have more gritty, you have the noir, you have this sort of forensic science mysteries that are mm-hmm. very popular now. You have like Scandinavian noir, which is very, um, it's a combination of the, you know, the independent detective and the police. And then you're starting to see sort of branches, you know, you're seeing a lot of interesting new detective fiction coming out of like Australia, like writers like Jane Harper, who are like moving this sort of genre of like location based detective fiction in a new way. And I think like Christie's sort of like has this kind of concept of being like historically like an important like trendsetter mm-hmm. a historical trendsetter in fiction and i think that's sort of like the resurgence in her work is almost a homage to that yeah we're also seeing a lot of like attempts to synthesize the two sort of schools like and to rework a lot of those older kinds of characters into being more sort of noir-ish uh flawed figures i mean look i think if you look at like sherlock the show, right? It takes Sherlock Holmes, who's like the the progenitor of all of this stuff, and now he's like an asshole, and he's more morally ambiguous, and he smokes, and he lies, and like... I also think like characters like Miss Marple, like you think about the cozy mystery, like Miss Marple, she's a flawed, bossy know-it-all, and she mm-hmm. makes morally sort of ambiguous decisions. Yes, I'm but in a mild-mannered way. And you compare it to, like, this whole trend of current cozy mysteries where, you know, a lady owns a knitting shop and mm. she solves craft-related murders. So, like, she is supposed to be a cozy detective, but she is less edgy than, like, for the time that Christie's writing Miss Marple, she is more edgy and she's more almost like a feminist character than people like looking back now than you know she was given credit for well yeah i think also her stuff is generally more it's she's a lot like uh hitchcock yeah in a way exactly where it was it was uh populist art but i think people take for granted how experimental a lot of it was do you remember the name of the first agatha christie story the one that poro isn't in but they talk about him Oh, okay. No, I'd have to look it up. But that almost reads like a deconstruction of the mystery story. I think a lot of it does. Her And there's also 
a lot of her work is about like World War Two and the sort of culture of the spy culture without actually being a spy novel. Like there's kind of there's a lot of like hints at deeper themes than just a cozy mystery of like a nosy knitting grandma solves a murder mystery in her small town. I mean, even like the, like the ferret styles, like. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Like, there's lots of like meta stuff in that of like commenting on like, oh, like one of the characters in the very beginning, this is the only Agatha Christie story I've actually read. So like, I'm sorry. But like one of the characters in the very beginning of that story is like, oh, if I was in a mystery story, they wouldn't be able to fool me. Right. And like, they comment on the structure of the mystery story and it's like this guy is trying to solve mysteries with like second the mystery with like secondhand deduction knowledge, and he's almost like he knows Perot, and he's using stuff he learned from Perot, but he's almost like a stand-in for the reader who's applying their knowledge from reading older mystery stories to try and solve this thing, which ends up being thornier and more complex than you would originally imagine it to be. There's also like a subtle class satire. In there as well. But I also think, like, Christie sets the bar for this later evolution of these kinds of detectives like Nero Wolf mm-hmm. and, like, Parker. And so some of these other kind of, like, even to, like... Bias- Nero Wolf's the big fat guy, right? Yeah. And I feel like those kind of, like, busybody know-it-all detectives are, like... Kind of a mix between like Sherlock Holmes and the Agatha Christie kind of Perot. So I think she's really sort of maybe like the genesis of a lot of like classic tropes that are used in detective fiction. Yeah. I mean, for Sherlock Holmes, it's kind of like Doyle kind of used Sherlock Holmes as a way to like, even if there's plot problems, he's kind of like, Oh, I figured it out. I, I'm so much smarter than you that I don't even have to tell you the, you know, the sequence that came to me to figure out this whole mystery. Yeah, well, sort of the biggest innovation of Sherlock Holmes was Arthur Conan Doyle going, what if a character in a book was smart? What if they got to be smart? What would that be like? And then we got Sherlock Holmes. This is all very good. We should talk about this more on the episode when we actually talk about this Agatha Christie story. Yes, 100%. So, Three Blind Mice, then after that, we're going to do the kindly ones. So just a lot of old people coming up in the next couple of yep. episodes. Also, let's take a moment to thank our yeah. new sponsor. Well, if you, if you would like to, if you would like to support us, you can go to co-fee.com slash dried up brain and you can tip us some money to buy a coffee or more realistically to eventually upgrade our audio setup. And somebody has done that. We got a sponsor. She's my grandmother. She kicked Thank- in some dough. Thank you very much, Grandma. Thanks, Mom. Uh, yeah. I think it's funny that no matter how old you are, that your mom is willing to support any kind of crazy thing that you do. So well, it depends on your mom. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's three generations with your hands on this podcast now. So that's cool, I guess. And just a side note. For mom, it's dried up brain, not the freeze dried brain. You can call it whatever you want, Graham. <laughs> Just keep that support coming. Uh, but yeah, if you want to kick in, you can go to ko slash dried up brain. And, you know, there's always money for books. Exactly. That's what we always say. 
And uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned, I think, right? I think so. Thank you.